uh, everybody and, uh, and welcome. And thank you so much, first of all, my name is Barbara Roach. Um, I chair the Migration Museum Project. Can I thank you very much for sort of turning up on this summer evening in such numbers? And I think that shows really what an inspiring and important subject this is. Um, thank you also for not being tempted, although I must admit it would have been interesting, into the phone hacking discussion, which is, which, which, which is uh, just next door. Um, it's just to, first of all, to thank um, LSE and Sarah for giving us uh, this wonderful venue for Matrix uh, Chambers uh, for being our sponsors uh, for this evening. Um, I want to, in advance, thank very much all our distinguished speakers who've agreed, up, agreed to give up their time this evening, to thank our development officer, Sophie Henderson, in particular, and just to have, in a very brief introduction, just to say to you um, that we are a group of volunteers um, who comprise the Migration Museum Project. Our aim is to establish uh, a national uh, museum of migration. We believe that it's really, really important that migration is seen to be an essential part of the British story. It's not a recent thing. If you look at British history over decades, it's about all our stories, and it's for everybody and all communities. We have a lot of uh, work planned. There is a, a body of seminars coming up and exhibitions. There will be a leaflet. Please don't leave this evening before you've had an opportunity to leave uh, your name, your email address with us so we can contact you uh, about uh, all we're doing. I'm delighted that Rabinda has agreed to chair, uh, to chair this evening. Rabinda was one of the first people uh, that we went to see and Rabinda came up with the excellent idea of holding seminars and this is the first one. And of course you all know what happens when you come up with fantastic ideas, you get asked to chair them. <laughs> Rabinda, over to you. Thank you very much and I would like to welcome you and thank you for coming this evening. I hope it's going to be a lively discussion and I certainly intend as chair to leave plenty of time for questions and discussion. Uh, I'd also like to thank Barbara uh, for being uh, an inspiration, perhaps the inspiration behind the Migration Museum project and I'd like to add my personal thanks in particular to the tireless work which Sophie Henderson has put into organising not just this seminar but also into the project more generally. Now I'd like to start <coughs> with a few introductory remarks of my own before I introduce our distinguished panel of speakers to you. It's fitting it seems to me since we are here at the LSE this evening to recall that it was a great professor at the LSC, Sir Karl Popper, who wrote uh, one of the great works of British philosophy of the 20th century, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And it seems to me that the Open Society has many meanings, one of which is a literal meaning about whether we are and whether we wish to be an open society. In uh, the essence of academia, it seems to me, is the spirit of free inquiry. And the world of ideas knows 
no frontiers. And one only has to think about who were amongst the great <coughs> contributors to what is usually regarded as being British philosophy of the 20th century, and immediately names like Isaiah Berlin and Ludwig Wittgenstein would come to mind, inevitably. Within the law, which is my own uh, area, uh, another great <coughs> professor at this school was, of course, Sir Otto Kahn-Freund, who had been a labor court judge in Berlin in the 1930s, and for perhaps obvious reasons had to leave in 1933, uh, and came to this country uh, and became one of the most successful uh, law professors. He dominated the field of labor law. In fact, it's no exaggeration to say that he probably created the subject of labor law, uh, especially in the middle of the 20th century. And, and like many <coughs> public intellectuals then and now, uh, Otto Kahn Freund was not one who was content simply to work in an ivory tower. He engaged with society and was hugely influential on uh, both main political parties in this country in developing a consensus on labor relations until that consensus broke down in the 1970s. I've talked about the open society. Now the government wishes to impose an arbitrary cap on students coming to this country from outside the EU. Uh, one hears of visiting scholars and artists who have difficulty coming to this country even to speak at a one-off festival or conference. And the government has introduced a language test uh, applied to even members of people's families. So, for example, if you wish to join your spouse or your partner in this country, you will now have to demonstrate proficiency in English. Not after you get here, uh, but before you can even uh, come into this country. Uh, this is a subject, I should say, of legal challenge, and I'm representing Liberty, who are intervening in that court case at the end of this month. Uh, but the signal it sends out, it seems to me, that some people are not welcome here. Uh, just as Hans Kelsen, the great Austrian jurist, who again had to flee the Nazis in the early 30s. When he initially came to this country, he was not able to speak a word of English. Eventually, he found a more welcoming home in the University of California at Berkeley, where he held a chair until his death in 1971. England's loss was America's gain. But tonight, we are here to celebrate the many people from migrant communities who have contributed to the intellectual life of this country in such diverse areas as the sciences, the arts, and the law. And we are fortunate to have a distinguished panel of speakers. And let me introduce them now uh, briefly, uh, without doing justice, I'm afraid, to their qualifications. First, we're going to hear from Sir Harry Croteau, uh, who in 1996 was a joint recipient of the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Then we're going to hear from Gita Seigel, who is a filmmaker, a writer, and a feminist human rights advocate, uh, and has uh, in the past served on the board of Southall Black Sisters. Uh, then we're going to hear from Professor Philippe Sands, a colleague of mine at Matrix, Professor of International Law at UCL, and a well-known writer and commentator on issues of international law and human rights, particularly in the last decade since 
And then uh, I'm hoping that we will uh, be joined on the panel towards the end uh, by Mike Phillips. Uh, uh, he's not able to join us straight away, but uh, Mike Phillips is a journalist and academic. <laughs> <laughs> last but not least, uh, last but not least, we shall hear from Mike Phillips, who is a journalist, an academic, and writer of both non-fiction and novels. So without more ado, can I invite Harry Toto, please? Well, it's a, a pleasure. Can you hear me okay at the back? Okay, just checking. Well, um, there are many aspects, and uh, my parents were refugees, and my father was tipped off by a policeman in Berlin to get out of the country. So I could consider that Hitler is my godfather, in a sense, and I think that's an issue. But I'm going to talk about uh, one or two things. I now live nine months a year in the States, and I wanted to t say something about Jefferson when they set up the United States. He made a major statement, because religious belief or non-belief is such an important part of every person's life. Freedom of religion affects every individual. State churches that use government power to support themselves and force their views onto persons of other faiths undermine our civil rights. Erecting a wall of separation between church and state, therefore, is absolutely essential in a free society. I think it's a very important statement. And in fact, on his tombstone, he, he was, said he was the author of the Declaration of Independence, the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, which I consider the most important document in the USA and the father of the University of Virginia. And I think it's important to realize that they were setting up a new country. They were refugees, of sons of refugees from Europe where there was a religious oppression. I think we, I'm going to discuss, I'm sure many will discuss the pros, and, but I'm going to discuss a few of the issues that affect me as a scientist. Um, this man is a Muslim who was trying to support evolution, and in fact uh, there were ma major issues, and I think um, there were many signatories. So I think scientists in particular have a problem with some of these issues. Um, let me, not all things are from the culture are good. This young man, he said uh, in a Lancashire accent, or a northern accent where I was brought up, we love death like you love life. And so those are some of the issues that disturb me. Another person who you might recognize is Rupert Murdoch, who was an, Aust is, was an Australian, came to this country, and I, his Times, Sunday Times, and this is from well before this. I've been running this for five or six years. Between 1988 and 99, didn't pay a penny of tax, and so he screwed you out of $1.4 billion. The Sun Blacks Blair, and what was the deal? It was basically uh, the satellite broadcasting. And Mur James Murdoch, two years ago at Edinburgh, said the BBC was chilling, okay, and here we have these issues. Why is he laughing? The most serious issue about Murdoch today is the attack in the United States on NPR, National Public Radio, as it was on the BBC here today. The Wall Street Journal is now in every hotel free. He owns that and is making it a global newspaper. There he is. Now it turns out I was at the World Economic Forum and he asked the views of Nobel laureates, including six of us. So I wrote an email to my colleague, Capricornforth, an Australian, and he said, here is the, one of the greatest men I know personally, lives in Lewis, he's an Australian. He said, if ever, which all possible goods, gods forbid, I had to meet Murdoch, there are two questions that I ask him. Was it pure greed that made you renounce your Australian citizenship? And the second one, did you lose your respect for
for truth gradually, or did you never have it? Murdoch, I, I sent this letter to Murdoch about two years ago before our meeting. He didn't answer those. And those are the issues. I think all of you should see Dennis Potter's um, on, on who, how many have seen this on YouTube? Murdoch, Dennis Potter, watch it. A tremendously uh, sort of um, eloquent attack showing how Murdoch and his attitudes have got into the, insidiously into the British society. Um, so that's Murdoch. I want to say something about myself as a scientist and aspects of science and what is very important to me. It's a body of knowledge. It's also the application of that knowledge technology and the numerous ways in which that knowledge was actually discovered. But first and foremost for me, that it used to have an, another name. It was natural philosophy, long before it was appreciated how important science was. And therefore, as far as I'm concerned, science is the only philosophical concept, if, if you wish, national, natural philosophy to determine truth with any degree of reliability. The ethical purpose of education should be to teach our children how they can decide what is true. The teaching of a skeptical evidence-based assessment of all claims, whatever they are, is vital for the future. Without evidence, anything goes. Think about it. Indoctrination. I'm really depressed because I was brought up in Bolton. I felt no religious, I was brought up to be Jewish, but I'm an atheist now. I felt nothing. I had friends of all kinds. There was no pressure that we see every day. We now have Christian play schools, madrasas in Pakistan, and Jewish kids today. We have a separation within our own community. We've got to fight this. We want our kids to go together in the same schools to learn what is good and what is bad about their culture. God, not all of it is good. These are children being taught to be Muslim, and these are children taught to be Jewish. Should parents have the right to bring their children up as they want? Should they have the right to teach their children that their classmates will go to hell because they're not of the same religion. That is being taught to children in this country on your taxes. Think about it. These are the worries I have. As it, I want to now mention the greatest man I knew personally, also an immigrant from Poland, who worked with Pugwash all his life, essentially. The day he was to leave with his wife, his wife got appendicitis. She had to go into hospital. He arranged for her to come out as soon as she was out and to come to England, to Liverpool. Unfortunately, while she's in hospital, Hitler invaded and she was never seen again. This is the greatest man, one of our great British people, a Polish guy. He was the only man to leave the Manhattan Project when it was clear that the bomb was not necessary and Hitler didn't have one. And I want to read from his Nobel address. We appeal as human beings to human beings. Remember your humanity and forget the rest. If you can do so, the way lies open to a new paradise. If you cannot, there lies before you the risk of universal death. The quest for a war-free world has a basic purpose, survival. But if in the process we learn how to achieve it by love rather than by fear, by kindness rather than by compulsion, if in the process we learn to combine the essential with the enjoyable, the expedient with the benevolent and the practical with the beautiful, this will be an extra incentive to embark on this great task. Above all, remember your humanity and forget the rest. And here he is, just, just down the road, just off Russell Square, in his office, just a few uh, a couple of years before he died. And look at this. <laughs> I don't know how it stays up. <laughs> he was a great man and I loved him dearly. And I, he was a wonderful immigrant. I'm going to finally say something which is very important to me. The great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, 
But the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Belief in myths allows the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And I wonder who said it? Well, there you go. Of Irish descent. I think it's important to realize that not only have immigrants come to this country and get given great contributions, but we've lost a lot. I actually went to Canada. I immigrated to Canada. And it was only touch and go that I came back. Whether you think that's good or bad, I don't know. But nevertheless, about 50% of the young people who went on postdocs to the USA or Canada, half of those did not come back. Britain has lost a lot and we're going to lose more because now it's so expensive in this country, a large number of young people are going to be educated in the USA or other places and other countries in Europe and they will probably not come back. We have major issues. I'm not a nationalist, I'm a citizen of the world. I don't like that, but immigration and migration is one of the great things. But let us please not separate our children from children of others. That's the major thing. I really do want you to fight it against this faith-based initiative, which will separate our children and will divide this country as never before. Harry, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction to our evening's discussion. Next, I'm going to invite Gita to speak to us. Um, gosh, this is quite an overwhelming occasion, actually. I didn't qu um, quite expect it to be uh, quite so moving. So seeing so many friends here and uh, having such a wonderful opening speech. Um, um, I, I'm an immigrant to this country as well. And I came here, actually, when I wasn't an immigrant. I was a, a fairly privileged student at SOAS. And I spent my 21st birthday, or rather the day after it, on the Grunwick's picket line. At that time, I'm not sure I had any particular regard for anything that might be considered <clears throat> the plight of Asian women. But I had a great regard for labor struggles. And so it seems to me fitting that my most memorable coming of age present was a lesson in how to survive being crushed in a huge mass picket. A lesson taught to me by working class men, mostly white, from the docks and mines of post offices who de defended the right of Asian women to strike for union recognition. And in fact, um, as, as we heard in Rabindra's introduction, um, uh, there, there has been a long history of building up a consensus uh, uh, about the right to have unions and for unions to be part at the negotiating table uh, with management and so on. And that struggle, the Brunswick struggle, was actually a, not only a sign um, of a great mass uh, British labor struggle, but a sign of that consensus breaking down and much more restrictive legislation that banned mass pickets and so on being introduced. Um, so it was actually a story of struggle and defeat. Um, and in stories of migration, we often dwell on fear, fear of the other by the majority, and also fear and suffering entailed by racism and exclusion. And tonight, as we're doing something different that is celebrating the contributions that migrants have made, um, I want to reflect, as, as we've already had, uh, heard, um, a little on how uh, the contributions of migration can be quite di of quite different kinds. They can be large contributions, but fundamentally opposed to each other in their politics and ethics. But if it's our long-term hope that migrant contributions are properly recognized and this society does remain 
and open society. We must surely also hope that migrants and their descendants are freed from having any inherent ethical qualities. That is, migrants as a group are neither wholly good nor wholly bad. Um, as with Grandwicks, um, women from migrant backgrounds have not often come to attention as public actors. Um, in fact, the uh, discourse on Asian women now, as opposed to 30 or 40 years ago, tends to focus more on uh, Asian women as a sign, as, as uh, objects of concern, uh, people who um, face uh, egregious wrongs, which of course, in many cases, they do. Um, but, the but the ways in which women became part of the national story uh, and I know Rosie is sitting here at the back, and um, so I'm quite nervous talking about national stories at the moment, when we have the person who's done most to recover these stories um, uh, here among us, uh, was of course as part of labor struggles in, 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 a, in a whole series of activities, both as specific struggles of Asian women alone, but also as part of larger um, labor struggles. Uh, against privatized industries, for instance, operating around Heathrow and so on. And many of these disputes came before the founding of autonomous black organizations, which were formed in the anti-racist struggles against the National Front and other racist groups. Um, so when there were autonomous organizations formed, and I think they're very, very different from the kinds of organizations we see now, and I really want to echo the remarks about um, worrying about uh, forms of segregation that are being promoted and being promoted by groups that have the backing of governments, have the backing of liberals, and have the backing of the left. Um, but at that time, the autonomous struggles were struggles that were fighting for equality, fighting for uh, fighting against exclusion and for equality, and not predicating themselves on um, the inequality of others. One of the women who's been a major source of inspiration in my life and um, uh, who uh, was one of the uh, first women to set up Southall Black Sisters as a uh, as, as an, uh, a, a black women's group was uh, Pragna Patel. And when she was at school uh, as a daughter of a baggage handler and a factory worker, her headmaster came past her and he recognized somebody who was an unusual child who had uh, possibilities and he said to her in the playground, he said, you're doing awfully well. You know, if you, if, you, if you continue like this, you might make ground staff at Heathrow. <laughs> Pragna Patel is one of those who, before she had any legal qualifications, which she now does, had probably made more case law than many lawyers dream of making in their lives. And those cases came out of the struggle of uh, very grassroots campaigns and individual struggles of Asian women facing domestic violence, facing immigration control, um, facing persecution as refugees in ways that were not recognized at that time by the law courts as uh, a grounds for um, uh, refugee status. So I'm talking about the Shah and Islam case, I'm talking about uh, the case of, uh, uh, that was fought by Southall Black Sisters uh, on Kiranji Walia, a woman who killed her husband after uh, facing years and years of domestic violence, which uh, changed the law, uh, changed case law um, on provocation. Um, at that time. And I'm talking also about a very long <coughs> campaign fought by Southall Black Sisters and many others to get forced marriage recognized as a harm. Um, and 
during that campaign, and it was it was enormously hard. And now you'll get any community leader saying, of course we're against forced marriage, but actually it was very hard to get it recognized as any either a crime or a human rights violation or, or any form of harm. I can remember putting in research proposals uh, when I was on the board of South Old Black Sisters along with the Anti-Slavery Society to do some research on this issue. We could get absolutely no money uh, to do the research. So it took a very, very, very long time to actually get it recognized. And now we have forced marriage cases being um, uh, heard uh, as part of uh, international crimes uh, in the uh, International Tribunal at Sierra Leone, which is trying uh, war crimes. Over there, um, uh, there has been a judgment handed down on the issue of forced marriage. But it's been a long series of struggles that started in very small places um, to, to get that. And I, I always try and get this thought through to the young people who come to me and say, very starry-eyed, uh, who are idealists, who say they want to work in human rights and their dream is to do public interest litigation in the great courts of their countries or international tribunals. And I say, forget all that. Go and work in a district court in a very unglamorous place. Um, do a lot of criminal law. You know, defend people that you don't really like. <laughs> because it's only by doing those things that you actually understand how law works, why it's important. And it is in, in those sorts of courts that the great cases arrive. They don't jump up fully formed uh, at the highest level tribunal. And with the professionalization of human rights, this, this simple point is something that isn't very well understood uh, anymore. Now, one of the major issues that we fought, uh, 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 and South Old Black Sisters continues to fight, um, and why we founded the organization Women Against Fundamentalism um, over 20 years ago, was to secularize Britain. Uh, we fought against uh, the blasphemy law in Britain uh, because the blasphemy law protected the Church of England. And at that time, there was a huge campaign um, uh, uh, in uh, uh, where, when the fatwa against Salman Rushdie was declared, there was a British campaign to uh, extend the blasphemy law so that it protected other religions. And that was being argued in the name of equality. And we argued that this was absolutely, fundamentally unequal, and that the only solution to it was actually to abolish the blasphemy law altogether so that one religion wasn't particularly protected, and that in fact to, have, to end the blasphemy law was to uh, protect freedom of religion or belief more widely rather than less. And in the course of that campaign, we also founded other groups. Uh, one was called Avaaz South Asia Watch. And I mean, every 10 years, there is, at least every 10 years, a hideous atrocity in India. And there are many campaigns formed here where, by secular South Asians who were involved in trade union struggles and anti-racist struggles and Indian workers associations, Pakistani workers associations, and so on, who were fighting um, the effects of communalism and fundamentalism in India. For instance, the massacre of at least 2,000 Muslims in Gujarat by the forces of the Hindu right. And that campaign had been promoted from Britain by the organized forces of the Hindu right. Um, and that was something that we looked at here. And we looked at the GLC funding of organizations of the Hindu right under Ken Livingston, in fact, asked him about it. I worked for uh, a program, uh, now long defunct, called Bandung File, run by Tariq Ali and Douglas Howe. And we asked Ken, you know, why are you funding these groups? You know, they're basically fascists. Uh, they're the people, they're the descendants of the people who killed Gandhi. And they're carrying out this struggle 
to build a temple on the site of a mosque, and it is a very dangerous struggle. And we were accused at that time of being very alarmist. And as many any of you who may know Indian history know that that was the forerunner to the killing of Muslims in Gujarat in 2002. But before that, in the mid-1990s, the mosque was destroyed. Because this film was made in 1986 or 7. It was a depressingly long time ago. Um, and the campaign that we were talking about led to the destruction of a mosque and a huge destruction of life across India um, uh, and targeted attacks on Muslims. Meanwhile, of course, jumping you know, to the present day, the war on terror has been used as, um, of course, face, uh, the, you know, to, to have a racial profiling of Muslims, which have, uh, many people from South Asian backgrounds have faced. And the older anti-racist groups, I'm afraid, have not been, well, one, they've been cut, so their, their funding has been cut. So groups like South Hall Black Sisters, South Hall Modern People, <coughs> the Asian Women's Projects, and groups in Newham, and many, many other groups that have actually uh, done work on police monitoring, defended people who were um, um, facing uh, terrorism charges in more recent times and so on, and who have actually been part of that thing that the Tories call the big society. In other words, voluntary groups that have depended a huge amount on, on yes, on paid workers, but also on voluntary contributions. Um, and, and all of that is being cut um, uh, at this time. Whereas uh, interfaith initiatives, as we heard, are thriving. And not only interfaith initiatives, but the backing, um, although the Tories have moved away from it, but the backing by Labour uh, or sections of Labour, because I know there were these discussions within the Labour Party as well, of uh, the Muslim Council of Britain, which is closely associated with the Jamaat-e-Islami. And even more bewilderingly, the backing by the Stop the War Coalition and the alliance of the Stop the War Coalition with the Muslim Association of Britain, which is a front organization for the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, they've denied that for years. And you'd be called an Islamophobe if you made that allegation. But then very helpfully, Mason Class did a long article about it in which they celebrated this alliance. And so, we, so now we um, you know, can see that now quite as much weight as being called Islamophobic. So, the point is that Muslims in this country have been squeezed by um, the, the backing of both the government and non-government forces, sometimes in the name of anti-racism or anti-Muslim racism, of forces of the Islamic right, exactly the same forces as the Hindu right that we fought in the mid-'80s. And um, that is, I think, a truly frightening thing. Because it's, it's really come throughout the universities uh, where, um, for instance, I'd, and I'd really like to ask Professor Sand about this because I'm really quite bewildered as to why, for instance, Dr. Bari would be asked to investigate uh, the case of the so-called Christmas bomber who was at UCL and you know, why somebody who's been associated with one branch of the Islamic right should be asked to, to investigate another branch of it. Or indeed, when there was, um, I'm sure, a wonderful event to celebrate um, the ending of religious discrimination in universities, he should be asked again to speak as a guest of UCL and the Humanist Association, an organization which stands for discrimination, which refuses to accept self-identified Muslims as Muslims, which not only denies them access to the religious ummah, but denies them citizenship rights in Pakistan. In Pakistan, you have to sign a document saying you're not an Ahmadiyya. I only found this out because 
I was attending an event at the Quilliam Foundation, and Ed Hussain, who was one of the founders of Quilliam, had refused to apply for a Pakistani passport when he found that he had to sign a declaration that he wasn't an Ahmadiyya, because Ahmadiyyas have been declared non-Muslims, and that means that they're subjected to pogroms and exclusion and arrest and killing um, by, among others, the forces of the Jamaat-e-Islami. So why somebody who believes in actually in the letter of the law of religious discrimination and in the blasphemy law, uh, which, uh, as we know, has caused so much trouble in Pakistan, should be given this kind of space in Britain, I don't know. At the same time as the kind of contributions that I was talking about of secular groups which have struggled with shoestring budgets, and frequently, and we'll have to do this again, when our funding was cut um, uh, in, in the early 80s, when the Tories first came into power in Ealing, in South Old Black Sisters, the workers went on the door, but they continued to work to keep the center open. And they worked like that for six months until we managed to find funding again. And that is a situation we're facing again, with vast amounts of money being controlled by, for instance, look for Rahman as mayor of Tar Hamlets, who's associated with fundamentalists, and the people who are fighting for war crimes trials in Bangladesh, uh, as part of a secular movement, both here and there across South Asia, uh, being utterly marginalized. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabinda. Uh, and Geetie, you posed a lot of excellent questions. I should say at the outset, I don't provide explanations for UCL's decisions, nor do I necessarily justify them, although I happen to teach. Uh, at um, UCL. I was really pleased to get uh, this invitation because the subject of migration, it seems to me, is one that's often treated uh, in the media with a very negative uh, perspective. And from my perspective, it has a very positive uh, element. I was born in this country, uh, but I still feel that I'm something of an immigrant. Uh, my mother was born in Vienna. Um, my wife's mother was born in Spain. My wife's father was born in France. Um, various members of the family came to uh, this country in circumstances of oppression, whether in Spain in the 1930s uh, or Vienna in the 1930s from different perspectives. And so I live acutely, um, as anyone will know who is an immigrant, the immigrant issues pass down the generations and they don't just somehow go away at some particular uh, moment. I also live with migrants in a very day-to-day -day life through my teaching. If I've got a class of 50 people, typically they will come, 45 of them will come from outside the United Kingdom. Uh, and I have uh, always seen that as part of the richness of the privilege in teaching at a university, having a room with people from the five continents. Uh, that is becoming more difficult, I have to say, in some of my students or prospective students, including one recent PhD student, uh, found himself in the absurd situation with the new regulations coming from Sri Lanka, uh, in which his application for a uh, visa to get into this country uh, was refused uh, on uh, the grounds, despite the fact that he was fully funded, uh, had a place. Uh, the uh, bank statement that he provided to the uh, immigration officer uh, in uh, Sri Lanka didn't have the logo of the bank on it. Uh, it, it. It literally is now under the new regulations that kind of regime uh, that applies. So these issues are very much part of my day.
day-to-day life. I want to talk about something a little different uh, and focus on one individual, which is a different tack uh, that's been taken by my two very distinguished colleagues, and talk about the role of immigrants in the world of law. Uh, and I do so, uh, in a sense, galvanized by one of the hats that I wear right now, which is a member uh, of the commission that was set up by the uh, government on examining the possibility of a UK Bill of Rights, um, which has been a very uh, interesting uh, experience. If you read the media, and particularly the Mail and the Telegraph, you will have the impression that the eight of us are somehow at our throats, tearing our jugulars apart. And I have to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, It is not functioning uh, in that way at all. But one of the issues, of course, that we face, uh, galvanized by a media campaign from certain uh, sections of of the media, uh, is that somehow the country faces the imposition of foreign values. That um, the European Convention on Human Rights Uh, comprises values that are alien to this country. And when you begin to explore the history uh, of uh, human rights law, one individual in particular emerges who was uh, an immigrant, um, in fact came to teach or to study at the LSE uh, in the uh, 1920s, and I want to talk a little bit about him. His name is Hirsch Lautenheit, and he is probably the greatest international lawyer of uh, the 20th century. He was born in a small town uh, called Zolkiev uh, in 1897. He studied at a university of a town that was then called Lemberg in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but then became part of Poland, known as the town of Lvov, and is now the city of Lviv. He went to study with Hans Kelsen in uh, 1919 in Vienna, and he was then plucked out of his doctoral obscurity by the Professor of International Law at the London School of Economics, Arnold McNair. And he came to study with Arnold McNair uh, here at uh, the LSE, and he went on to become the uh, Professor of International Law at the London School of Economics. And from that, uh, he went on to become a professor of international law at the University (coughs) of Cambridge. Uh, And uh, from there, um, having helped Hartley Shawcross and David Maxwell Fyfe draft the Nuremberg Statute, and he is actually the principal drafter of Article 6 of the Nuremberg Statute, so the man who really is to be credited with the modern system of international criminal law, crimes against humanity, uh, and so on and so forth. But from that, rather remarkably, despite his background, and I'll say a little bit more about it, uh, he became the British judge at the (coughs) International Court of Justice in The Hague. Now, last October, I was invited to give a public lecture about some of my work in the university that he had come from. And I thought that was an interesting place to go. I normally wouldn't have accepted it. But my granddad happened to have come from the same town. And my great-grandmother, by complete coincidence, (coughs) was born in the same village as Hirsch Lauterbach. So I thought it would be sort of interesting uh, to go and visit this place and meet uh, the characters there. Any of you uh, who are familiar with the history of that region uh, celebrated, or that's probably not the right word, in um, Timothy Snyder's recent book, Bloodlands, will know that it is not a happy place, historically. And as between the Poles, the Ukrainians, 
the Jews, the Russians, the Soviets. There have been years of uh, difficulty. And I asked the wonderful students at the now Ukrainian law school whether they could imagine, any of them, in 40 years' time, being elected the British judge at the International Court of Justice. And they just laughed. You know, they, it, it was beyond somehow their conception that they could move to the United Kingdom and that the government of the United Kingdom would then select to be the judge of that country at the World Court in The Hague. And so I think it reminds us, and it reminds me constantly, that there is much in this country that has been remarkably open. It's very hard to think of many other countries where that kind of story uh, can be told. Now, it's not an easy story. Um, eight years ago, I gave an inaugural lecture at University College London, and the subject of my inaugural lecture was the appointment of British judges at the International Court of Justice. Um, 1946, 1954, and 1960. And I chose those three years because the archives under the 30-year rule had been opened, and so you could have access to the memos, the kinds of memos that uh, don't exist anymore uh, in relation to uh, individual governmental decisions. Now it will be on deleted emails or on little yellow stickies that get put. We all know that. We've all been there. Things do not get written anymore uh, in retrievable documents. And so I dug up. I was just really curious as to how it could be that this guy who came from this other place arrived uh, in, in Britain speaking virtually knowing uh, and who had, I should add, linking this to the story about the Commission on Bill of Rights, been the person who drafted the pamphlet that was then picked up by David Maxwell Fine and that became the embryonic European Convention on Human Rights, which I love to tell uh, those on the right in the Commission on Bill of Rights was, of course, proposed by a Conservative uh, government, uh, rather taking the wind out of their sails as they uh, proceed, uh, certainly in the media side to have a go at this story. But I was really curious as to how this could have happened. And uh, the story is uh, an interesting one. Selwyn Lloyd um, at the Foreign Office was the principal minister responsible uh, for the decision. He didn't think that it would be really worthwhile for any English judge uh, to take the post. Um, <laughs> judge, I didn't say English man, and of course English woman at that point would have been unheard of, uh, to take the post, given the lack of experience in the field and conditions in the Hague. Um, um, but Selwyn Lloyd nevertheless expressed the view that a subject like international law, despite the fact that it has pretty wide ramifications these days, is one which can be easily learnt up. Um, <laughs> now, if there were no judges who were fit for the job, there were a number of persons in academic circles. And Selwyn Lloyd was told by McNair, who was the Serbian British judge, um, that the right person was Professor Hirsch Lauterpau. And according to Selwyn Lloyd, uh, such a nomination would meet with universal approval internationally and would be the best and right thing to do. The problem with that, of course, was that he was an immigrant. And this became an issue in the House of Commons, and more interestingly, in the correspondence uh, behind the scenes. And Selwyn Lloyd addressed this very directly in private correspondence that's available down 
down in queue as follows. He's not British by origin, uh, it's said, but he has been naturalized for more than 20 years, and he has been continuously resident in this country for upwards of 30. He's very much liked by all those who know him, and despite his continental origins, <laughs> despite his continental origins, his outlook on legal matters reflects mainly the Anglo-Saxon approach. <laughs> Owing to his origins, coming back again, this is a constant theme that comes up, he would not perhaps be what we should regard as entirely sound from our <laughs> point of view on matters of human rights. That is to say, his bias would be to take perhaps too wide a view of the topic. However, irrespective of the character of the British judge, this is a subject on which we should always wish to keep away from the court in any event. Now, that view was shared by Arnold McNair, formerly of the LSE, which was uh, hugely important because he chaired the UK National Group on the Appointments Committee but it did not meet with universal approval. And in particular, Lauterpacht faced stiff opposition from the then Attorney General, Sir Lionel Heald MP, and even more so from the Solicitor General, Sir Reginald Manningham Buller MP, familiar name. <laughs> Both considered that it would be a mistake because of his origins. The attorney wrote to Selwyn Lloyd to share with him his considered opinion expressing the view that the appointment would be very badly received by the legal profession in this country and by the House of Commons. And he wrote as follows. He has, of course, the highest academic qualifications as an international lawyer, but he has no judicial experience of any kind, he has never practiced, and he has no standing at the bar, English bar, that is, of course. Moreover, it's been impressed on me that in these days, when the international court touches British interests at so many points, public confidence in it is more than ever essential. It is therefore surely desirable that our representative in the Hague should both be and be seen to be thoroughly British. Whereas Lauterpacht cannot help the fact that he does not qualify in this way either by birth, by name, or by education. So that objection came too late. Uh, because the decision had already been taken uh, and he was duly elected. But it reflects, I think, <coughs> an ongoing debate uh, in this country. But nevertheless, his election stands, I think, as a reflection of the extent to which, even back in the 1950s, it was remarkably possible to overcome um, one's origin, so to speak, to be elected to that kind of... Uh, of office. I hope that is still the case today. Uh, I, I regret, and I've expressed this regret before, that the Commission on a Bill of Rights is not more representative uh, of uh, the richness of this country by reference to its background uh, and uh, diversity, but I am sure that every member of that Commission is deeply conscious <coughs> of that fact and will therefore be bending over backwards to make extremely sure that in taking views and in consulting, um, everyone, literally everyone, is properly given an opportunity to express views, because I think that is the tradition uh, with which we've become familiar, and it's a tradition that is particularly powerful, as Rabinda's and my presence uh, on this panel uh, today uh, reflects. Thank you very much.
you for that fascinating account, particularly about the first laptop pack. But uh, can I just add one footnote to that? Because it does seem to me that in relation to modern judicial appointments of that kind, it, it, it probably says something still about the openness uh, of our society that the British judge at the Court of Justice in Luxembourg is Sir Conrad Schema, yeah. uh, who was born uh, in Germany. Uh, and the British judge uh, recently made the president of the European Court of Human Rights is Sir Nicholas Bratzer, who, although not uh, a migrant himself, uh, does have Serbian ancestry in a relatively recent past. Uh, but thank you for that. Uh, and last but not least, I'm going to invite Mike Phillips to address this. Thank you. I am. Um, <coughs> I find myself in a little difficulty here because I don't feel being a migrant is a problem. I actually enjoy being a migrant. Um, and when I look through my own background, I have a very clear sense that being a migrant or having a migrant background is kind of the thing to do. Um, <laughs> it's uh, the modern idiot. And I have this sense partly because um, I travel quite a lot, uh, particularly in, in, in Europe. And I'm struck again and again and again by the sense in which um, the populations of people I encounter almost all have their roots in somewhere else. Uh, the, the, the sort of population that belongs to a particular piece of land and uh, can trace their ancestry right back is usually quite backward and um, live very dull lives. And this, in a way, is the sense in which I want to welcome the work of the Migration Museum. Um, partly because the entire topic seems to me to have been so extensively misrepresented and misused. And, and partly because it's a belated recognition of an important aspect of British history with, without, without which we can't have um, an accurate picture of our social history. I think that the, there, there's a problem, yeah? And I think the problem is that the narratives about our population, about our society, um, start in the wrong place. And uh, that's because they tend to begin and to end with claims about exclusive ownership of particular pieces of territory, um, particular kinds of culture, and these claims about racial and ethnic authenticity. So all grand narratives are deeply inscribed with the notion of migration as a break with the past, as a, on a par with invasion, incursions of one kind or the other. And when I was thinking about the Migration Museum, and, and I was thinking about um, doing this, it struck me that the idea of describing the benefits that specific migrants have brought to this country had about it a, a sense of defensiveness that, that I'd abandoned long ago. 
Um, as I understand it, we all have a common ancestry in Africa. And our <laughs> presence on all of these continents is the result of long and complex migrations. So I want to, I, I really want to emphasize, I want to point out that migration not only predates the idea of nations and national territories, it also <coughs> has been a constant factor in human activities. Any part of history you look through, um, every movement, every event, every upheaval, every period of calm and prosperity um, in human history seems to me to be accompanied by or framed within a steady trickle of migration or a flood of migration. Well, whatever you want to call it. But of course, this has been pretty much ignored in the way that we construct our narratives of, of identity. So we talk in this same way about migration being this, uh, not just a break with the parts, but uh, something that you have to defend or justify or, um, or uh, create an argument about. The truth is that migration has always been going on, it will continue to go on, and um, there are particular things associated with, with it. But um, migration isn't up for discussion. It is. It's like the rain. People move. <laughs> I, I was watching the um, uh, television the other day. Uh, well, I watch the television every day, what am I saying? I was watching television news. And I was looking at the uh, boatloads of um, West Africans <coughs> coming into um, coming into Europe from Libya, and um, the commentary said very pompously that uh, you know this is a demonstration that uh, Colonel Gaddafi is about to un unleash unleash a flood of illegal immigration on Europe. And I thought, what are they talking about? Um, this will happen in any case. I remember a friend of mine, uh, what was his name, Desmond, he was a poet. And um, he was talking about his holiday in which he'd been driving through um, the south of France. And uh, Desmond uh, originally came from Jamaica. And he said, you know, uh, I'm listening to these guys talking about roots, and I was thinking, driving through the south of France, if only they would exchange the desert for this lot, I'll take it, you know? Um, I don't care about what my roots are, I just want to live in a nice place. Um, now, I was kind of reminded, um, again, thinking about the way this narrative works, or these narratives work, when I, I read a couple of articles in the newspapers a, a, a couple of years ago about um, a book which was purported to be about Battersea, um, I, I must tell you I have an interest in this lot because um, I did an oral history with, with my brother there um, called uh, Windrush, the, um, the Windrush the Irresistible Rise about Multiracial Britain. Um, and, and we were talking about um, the we were talking about the migration in the middle of the century of, of Caribbeans to, to this country, um, and we 
we saw of invented the boat Windrush. It existed, but um, it was only one of several boats. We, ju we just thought that was the most interesting one. Um, and that has inserted that whole concept of the word into the language. People talk about the Windrush generation and all the rest of it. So I, I was reading about this book uh, about Battersea by a man called Michael Collins. And it's a long and sentimental memoir whose major argument was that this area, Battersea and, and the Elephant, was a pure sort of reservoir of white working class identity um, in the 50s when, when, when the author grew up and the appearance of migrants in the 60s had somehow ruined it. And by some weird irony, this was the area of London which at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century was part of the heartland of, of radical politics in, in London, in the capital. And it was a politics in which black and Asian activists were key at the center of it. Uh, John Archer was a black man with a migrant background, an internal migrant from Liverpool, and he became mayor of Battersea in 1913, and subsequently became agent to um, Shapuri uh, Shakavala, who, who then became the MP from Battersea North in 1922. Um, and all this was several decades before Mr. Collins was born in the same district, which he described to great acclaim as an area previously unsullied by the presence of migrants. But the funny thing was that at the time I was, um, I was writing about this, uh, the MP was um, Alfie Dubbs, Lord Dubbs, who's migrant <laughs> from the Czech Republic. And as um, a, a lovely irony. But that's powerful, of course. In every period of our history, there are migrants creating events and ideas which make enormous contributions to the culture. Um, you know, it, 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 for instance, if you look at the start of the infrastructure of modern English music under the Prince Regent, uh, you'll find names like um, Ivan Yanovich. Um, Barthelemon, uh, Viotti, and of course George Bridgetower, who was a black violinist uh, born in Hungary and made, who made England his home at um, the end of the 19th century. Now, oh, sorry, um, yes, in, in between all that, you'll find all kinds of individuals and groups, writers like Equiano, uh, political activists like the Spencian Robert Wedderburn, and a network of uh, migrants who were part of the Chartist movement, um, some of them who got hung at Marble Arch, um, and all this before you get very far into the 19th century. I don't want now, is, and I've sort of told you this, this history, which you should actually know. Um, and uh, I mean, that's part of the problem that, that um, our education about ourselves is so restricted to specific narratives um, that we miss <laughs> we miss a large part of our history. Um, I, I don't want to go back to talking about migration as a particular good. I think that's indisputable. And um, it's interesting the way that migrants have created areas in which um, we have become 
essential parts of um, of the culture, essential pillars of the culture. Um, if you, you know, if you uh, haven't read Rushdie or Andrea Levy or um, what's her name? Um, uh, Smith. Sadie. Yeah. Um, you don't have a serious interest in English literature. Um, and you, you know, if you, <laughs> if, if you don't know something about Keith Faz or Valerie Amos or Diane Abbott or Trevor Phillips, you, you, you're not interested in public life. <laughs> and you know, I can think of the progress of, um, I used to be a curator of tape, so um, I, I notice artists. And I think of the progress of modernism um, with people like now Paul Niagu, who's a Romanian, um, who was a Romanian, <laughs> and uh, Aubrey Williams, who was from Trinidad, and the sense in which these people took a particular kind of role in, um, in particular movements of, of, of painting. And uh, you know, then you come to people like Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy, uh, who teaches here, don't they? Yeah, Paul Gilroy teaches here. Um, <laughs> but who, who were sort of fundamental to the development of ideas about cultural studies in, in, in the modern period. And uh, you know, I'm thinking, thinking about the most recent migrants that I encounter from Eastern Europe, and I'm struck by the sense in which both the difficulties they meet and the struggles they mount um, remind me, remind me, you know, acutely of um, the middle of the, of, of the last century and um, the way that um, the people lived and, 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 and what they did when they became migrants and they understood the sense in which being a migrant involved particular kinds of transformation. Yeah? And you know, that's the only thing, interesting thing, that um, I'm, I am continually reminded about being a, a, a migrant. You know, there's various kinds of discrimination and um, various kinds of pain. I've been through all that shit. What I, what I remember about um, where we are is that sense of transformation, the sense in which you begin to understand two, two things. One, that being a migrant transforms you, and being a migrant transforms your environment. So there's a real sense in which I wish and I want for us to begin talking, and I hope the Migration Museum will do this, will to begin talking about migration, not as a problem, not as a political struggle, but as a phenomenon which goes on all the time and has specific meanings for the lives of individuals in which you become something else, your environment becomes something else, and that is part of a movement which has been going on 
for as long as we know about history.
actually celebrates, and, and I, I agree with my feelings, that we ought to celebrate who we are. And it's just by celebrating and telling the London population and the English population and the British population about its migrant community, we will fight the racism that is at the moment uh, quite right. The more austerity measures are taken, the more stick the migrant workers get. So, before I ask the panel to respond, if they'd like to, to those contributions, I just wanted to add one thought of my own, if I may, to what I've heard from Mike and others from the audience. It reminded me of a, a film that some of you may know, which was made about five years ago by the writer and director Sally Potter, and it's called <coughs> Yes. Uh, and, it's, and it's fascinating uh, because it's entirely in iambic <coughs> pentameters. But uh, there's a line, it's, it's about a love affair between uh, a man from Lebanon and a doctor from Northern Ireland. And in an argument that they had, the, the man says to her at one point, why do I always have to know your stories? Why do you never know any of my stories? And I think this, this is emerging as a theme uh, in part this evening, that, that many of us are expected to know stories, history, as you say, but the history of this country as a history of migrants is not something, generally speaking, that we will have learned, certainly in mainstream school mm -hmm. education. But can I just ask if any of the panelists would like to respond to what we've heard so far? Oh, just one thing Thank about you. the education is yeah. obviously a vital thing, but the internet, I mean, this museum will go on the internet, and I think the kids will be able to walk through this museum at some later stage. I mean, that's one of the ways that it gets out to 10 to 100 times more people than you're absolutely right. I'm heavily involved in education, and uh, I'm glad you brought it up. No. Look, teacher, um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I agree with you, but, but, but I think there's a hugely complex network of attitudes and, and obstacles to the business of educating people about specific things, yeah? If you, if you say um, that something is, um, is, is education, that is, um, and confined, or rather, um, prioritized for school children, yeah? One of the things that, that happens is that it becomes the sort of thing that they say in school. Um, and if you look at the way that um, your, your pupils and, and, and older people in, in education um, respond to ideas about themselves, a great deal of what they learn or they're trying to learn um, is acquired from the media. It's acquired from, let's say, um, news news reports about Dizzy Rascal. Um, you know who Dizzy Rascal is, yeah? Um, uh, it's acquired from the way that um, that role models are presented, who, who they are. <coughs> Um, if we, we, we look at, we're shown role models who happen to be terribly rich, um, 
or have particular kinds of, of power, um, but who aren't, um, as it were, encouraging in the way that, 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 that you, you, you're describing. And I think it's a problem across the society, across the media, and, um, and not just for schools, yeah? Um, and I worry that, that when one says, oh, we must do this in, in education. You, you, you know, I've, I've spent the last how many years um, doing, a, you know, I've, I've just done two operas with, with, with my friend Julian Joseph about right figures in, um, in London schools over the last three years. And everybody enjoys it, and the kids get to know about those things. But actually, there is no reinforcement <laughs> in the world outside, yeah? So they either forget it, or they regard it as a kind of school propaganda. <laughs> Uh, so we, we actually need, you know, to think of education in a broader way. Just very quickly. For no, just, I just want to come in on the, the link between in this conversation, because I agree with almost everything that Mike has said, but I, I don't think we can say boldly, we can, we can wish it, that being a migrant is not a problem. But for a lot of people, being a migrant is a very big problem, and it's becoming a bigger problem. One of the reasons it's becoming a bigger problem is that unlike the situation even a few years ago, things that were accessible without money being needed are no longer accessible uh, without money being needed. I'm thinking of university education, and I see that now in my university, and I suspect it's the same in this university, that gaining access to a place of further education, being dependent on being able to provide a certain amount of funding, undoubtedly, no question about it, hits people from certain backgrounds disproportionately, and one of those groups is newly migrant communities who do not have easily available the wherewithal to be able to raise the funds. I've seen it directly at UCL with the entry figures, with the application figures. We've, we're seeing it, we're living it. So it, it is a, a real problem. In relation to the education thing, I would just share with you that Robert Peston has started, a, a, to, to Mr. Teacher at back, um, has started a, a new project that will be up and running from uh, October called Speakers for Schools. And I'm going to mention them exactly what you have said and what's been discussed over here in terms of the need to address precisely this issue in the program uh, that is being designed. So I'm very grateful to you, and I think it's yeah. something that the yeah. museum can certainly take up. Can I quickly try and squeeze in two more contributions? Yes, gentlemen, just here. Yeah. Uh, could I just pick up? My name is John Adler. I represent the Council for Assisting Refugee Families. And it's a great privilege to be here tonight because we certainly welcome this initiative uh, by, by this, this centre. The point I want to make is very much the point that, that Philip has made, that I don't think as a group, and I think I'm very impressed by the spectrum of organisations and people here tonight, I think we need to um, have a very much a campaigning and a public profile to the work that we're doing. A museum is very, very good, but I come from a background where the director of the LSE founded our organization in 1933. 
Karl Popper was one of ours. We funded 18 that subsequently became Nobel Prize winners. Over 140 fellows of the British Academy and the Royal Society. Why did it happen in the 1930s? Because there were people who were willing to stand up and be counted at that time, right? They had a public appeal. Einstein spoke, right? There were many, many criticisms against what they were doing. And I think with Barbara's involvement and with other politicians' involvement, we need a movement which I think this group here could do in terms of actually putting on a public face. Because the people that I represent, we, we, we have about 300 refugee academics who, when they deal with discrimination point blank, it's very real. Their children feed it. Asylum children <coughs> cannot get to a university because they're treated as overseas student fees. What kind of justice is that? So we need to move so that. Thank you very much for that. One last contribution. There's a gentleman at the back. Thank you. Um, my name's Brian Lampkin. I, I work in Northern Ireland at the Centre for Migration Studies at the Austro-American Folk Park, and I'm, I'm also currently chairman of the Association of European Migration Institutions. I think this is a terrific gathering, uh, it's a wonderful project, and it's terrific to see so much support this evening. But I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused at the moment about the objective of the project. Um, it, a museum of migration, is, it, is the objective to promote the public understanding of migration, or is it the narrower objective of promoting the public, understand, a public understanding of the contribution of immigrants to this country? I ask because, broadly speaking, in Europe, migration institutions, my museums fall into two, yeah. two kinds. There's museums that are main focus is on emigration yeah. from Europe, yeah. and then, particularly, I'm thinking of Paris, yeah. the Museum of Immigration. Yeah. I'll ask Barbara to deal with yeah. that specifically. That, that's, thank you very much for that. That's a very sort of, sort of neat point. But, but uh, for the last question uh, of the evening. Um, our aim, and it, uh, you know, let me accept right from the beginning, and it's a, a really ambitious one, is to tell the British migration story. Um, and it very much it echoes some of the points that have been made by our speakers this evening and some of the questions have come. And what we <coughs> want to say that this is an essential part of our history, that you cannot understand British history unless you regard the migration bit as the missing bit. In this country, there is no migration, there is no museum of British history. If there was, we would regard the migration story of being an essential part. So we want to tell, we want to tell that story. Uh, we want very much, we're a very open organisation, we want to work with everybody, and that very much includes everybody who's come along this evening. So as a, a plea again for all of your details. Uh, and obviously we want to work with people internationally. And of course, to answer the second part of your question, we believe very strongly that as part of telling that story, uh, yes, in parts it's a very difficult story, but overall it will be you know, a celebration, <coughs> I think, of what it means to be British, about what it means to be British today, but also, very importantly, what it's meant to be sort of British in the past as well. And I very much echo that point that, 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 that Mike made, uh, because not only do migrants change, but society changes as well. And in my view, certainly in the view of the project, becomes immeasurably richer uh, because of that. So it's a really exciting project, and um, you know I'm just so thrilled uh, that at our sort of first 
occasion. We've had such a fantastic response. So thank you. Before we close the formal session, I'm going to ask you, sir, just one more minute if, if you'd like to respond. Well, I, I think it's a fantastic project, and um, uh, and 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 your your question at the back about migration in general and celebrating migrants, I think, is a is a key point because some of our histories are being colonized in ways that actually silence the contribution that migrants have done. And, and those are because of the kinds of movements that I'm talking about taking over the official version of history and actually creating another form of silencing. So I think it's very good to be conscious of that at the start of the project because it is an immensely rich undertaking. It would inevitably be controversial. It would be controversial not only because papers like the Daily Mail may well attack it, but because it's controversial within migrant communities because they are such diverse and heterogeneous um, communities in various ways. And so I, you know, I sympathize with um, the person who said that there was a film made on, uh, you know, the multi I'd love to hear more about it um, afterwards because I think the teacher probably didn't know, you know, she, you were challenging a fundamental form of authority uh, at that time where they knew very little about what they were talking about and they couldn't have a student who knew more. And I think that is one of the problems around migrants and migration, that the students often know more than the teachers. I sense a lot of energy in this room, and I know that you would like to carry on the discussion. I have to draw the formal session to a close now, but please don't go away. May I say just one yeah, thing? Yeah, you might. It's interesting because I see the same things at this table. Philip, I think you're completely wrong. No, and it's important. I never suggested that migrants didn't have problems. What I, what I, what's important to say is that you don't define yourself by your problems. You're a human being. You may have problems, but that's not what defines you. So being a migrant is simply being a migrant, not being a problem. Don't go away. If you can stay, we're going to have drinks outside now, and we can carry on the discussion informally. Um, Lastly, can I ask you please to join me in thanking our fantastic panel of speakers for giving up their time.